let's stand together and uh, we are continuing on in our series of seven, the seven vices and the seven virtues. And today we're talking about the sixth one and our final installment is going to be in a couple of weeks. And today we're talking about failure in success, aka greed. And the text we're reading is from Judges chapter 17 verses 1 to 6. I'm going to read the blue. And you're going to read the black. Now, I've got to tell you, this is a strange text. So just be ready. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim. By the way, Ephraim is just another word for Israel. Whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. So when he restored the money to his mother... His mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and a household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Been a rough week, huh? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love the written word, and we love the living word, Jesus Christ. And we love the fact that anytime we read it, anytime we hear it, anytime we gather around worshiping the word, you are here present with us. As a matter of fact, your word says that anytime two or three of us come together in your midst, that you, anytime we come together in your name, rather, that you're there in our midst. And you are here today. You have spoken to us today already through the gifts of the Spirit, through the word of exhortation. And we're grateful for it. You have spoken to us through worship today. And so we pray this morning that you would continue now to speak to us through the word. We pray that you would give us a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand. And Lord, help us as we move beyond the doors of this building beyond this property, to be people who live out your truth in tangible, meaningful ways. And we pray this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So the text in Judges chapter 17 continues on to verse 13, but I think what we need this morning is suffice in these six verses. Now let me ask you a question. Do not, do not, do not raise your hand. How many of you have ever thought about winning the lottery? Rayal, I told you not to raise your hand. (laughs) How many of us would like to win $758.7 million U.S.? Don't answer that. That was the prize of the Powerball ticket 
Just a couple of weeks ago, on August the 23rd, 2017, Mavis Wanchuk from Chicopee, Massachusetts, is the, the largest winning, single winning ticket person in American history. By the way, it's not the largest um, jackpot ever in the United States. The largest jackpot was a Powerball ticket to the tune of $1.6 billion. It was won on January the 23rd, 2016. Now, it was, had to be shared, rather, by three people. If you're wondering how much each person got... All three received $533,333,000 per person. By the way, this last, on September the 8th, I think it was on Friday, that the, uh, Lotto, um, the Lotto Max jackpot was 50, 000, sorry, $50 million Canadian. That's about $8 U.S., now, I want you to think about it for a moment. Why? Why would we want to win the lottery? Have you ever thought about why would we want to win the lottery? I mean, what do you do with $758.8 million? So our subject matter today is greed. Greed. And a couple of questions come to our mind is, what is greed? And secondly, where does greed come from? Well, I think first of all that most of us, many of us, if not most of us, do not need a definition for greed. We are our own definition because we know it firsthand. We may not like it, But we all know that greed is a reality in our lives. But the problem is that we have a tendency to think of other people as being greedy and not ourselves. The second question, where does it come from? Well, the short answer is simply this. Greed comes from sin. It comes from our human sinfulness. Greed is human. Joan Chittister In a book that I've been reading called Between the Dark and the Daylight, Embracing the Contradictions of Life, says this. There are two kinds of people in the world we like, we are fond of saying on St. Patrick's Day, and it's true, the only problem is, is that we confuse the categories. And she says, the first kind is the politician who was asked in the course of a recent election, as a matter of economic comparison, how many houses he owned. The candidate struggled for an answer. Well, I'm not really sure right now, he said solely, trying hard to remember. Maybe six or seven, I guess. The second kind, Chittister says, is the homeless street beggar who found a diamond and platinum engagement ring in his begging bowl and instead of pawning it, put it aside for safekeeping until the stranger who had dropped it there by accident returned three days later looking for it. And she adds that both types of people are poor, but only one of them knows it. 
The poverty of plenty is a state of mind, she writes, where enough is never enough. It is an agonizing situation to be in this spider's web of unending desire. Eric Fromm said that greed is a bottomless pit which exhausts the person in an endless effort to satisfy the need without ever reaching satisfaction. So what is greed? Greed is the engrossment of the soul. It is a spiritual reality that confuses one bite of life after another without ever bothering to really taste the prize. For the greedy, for the greedy, it's not about enjoying things, it's simply about having them. It's about collecting the trophies of life, like hunters who hang their deer and moose racks in their living room long after the hunt is over. That everything grows redundant. And the point is, the point is that we can all become glutted, glutted by the pursuit of things rather than the pursuit of life. And the engorgement of goods or the engorgement of things like any other unbalanced diet of bananas or chocolate or ice cream or steak or pizza or whatever it is eventually becomes sickening. It becomes unpalatable. So greed is the engorgement of the soul. But it's also the poverty of the soul. And that Poverty of soul is like a cancer cell that begins to eat away at the rest of our lives. To quote Chittister again, she says, To have everything is to have nothing. Overwhelmed by, the, by quantity, we lose all awareness of life, crystallized into small pieces of joy and insight and gratitude. It is the death of the soul. The poet John Dryden once said that plenty makes us poor. And when we become like this, we become like children who have too many toys and they look at them and they have so many toys that they don't know what to play with next. And they, so they simply just sit and look at the toys. And for what purpose? And so having it all leaves us purposeless. Because I think we all know that having something left in life to need or to want actually gives us a sense of purposefulness. Something to strive for stretches us. Something to work for teaches us things we would never have tried to learn any other way. Sometimes to be grateful for Something enables us to know the power of love and the willingness of others to sacrifice themselves for us and never expecting a reward in return. Having it all leaves us with a sense of purposelessness. The story is told of a little boy, a young boy, who received a dartboard for Christmas. And he got it out and hung it up, and he, the first dart that he threw was a bullseye. 
And the dad, of course, calls the, the boy's mom into the room and says, watch this. And the boy takes a second, air, a second dart and throws it, and it's a bullseye. Well, by now the dad is over the moon and all filled with pride and all those things, and he calls the whole family together and says, hey, watch this. And the boy takes a third arrow, or a third dart, rather, throws it, and the third time he hits a bullseye. He walks over, takes the board, puts it down, puts it into a box, and puts it away. And the boy stopped throwing darts. And no matter of coaxing could ever get him to take it out of the box again. See, we are like the proverbial dog. You know the dog that barks and chases after the car? Yes? Here's a question. What's the dog going to do with the car when he gets it? But that doesn't stop us from chasing after it, does it? And so then that brings us to our text. Judges chapter 17, verses 1 to 6. Now, when we look at the biblical text, there is a number of things that I want to draw to your attention that are not in your notes, but I want to draw them to your attention. The first thing is this, that the first thing that I notice about this text is that we're just dropped into it. There is no introduction, there is no preamble, it is just there. We're thrown into it. And our text concludes by repeating the point of the book of Judges, which is, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. It talks about social anarchy. The writer is saying, this is what happens when everybody does what he or she sees fit. And this is the reoccurring theme of the book of Judges. And as we move along in the final week, we will notice that this theme begins a, or continues to be a serious downward spiral. The second thing we notice in this text is that to have 1,100 pieces of silver in biblical times, in the time of this text, is to have a small fortune. We know from verse 10 in the passage reading on that the average or the annual salary of a priest was about 10 pieces of silver annually. So this is a small fortune that this lady has. And the third thing we notice is that it is a fortune that has a curse attached to it. Micah's mother utters a, cur a curse when she discovers that the money is gone, but we don't know what the curse was or what the result was. But I want you to file in the filing cabinet of your mind for a minute the idea that this small fortune has a curse attached to it. The fourth thing that we're told is... Rather, the fourth thing that we're not told is why it was taken. We only know that it was taken by her son and then it was returned, but we don't know why. And then the fifth thing that we see in here, which makes this text strange, is that she blesses the Lord, but then takes part of it and uses it to make an idol. Now, if you know anything about the Bible and you know anything about God... 
and you know anything about Judaism, that's an absolute no-no. And then the other thing is that Micah creates his own version of worship by establishing his own shrine with God's idols and he installs his own son, the grandson of the woman who owned the money, as its priest, spiritual anarchy. Syncretism. Syncretism is a big word that is referred to of the blending of different belief systems. To the point that you really can't begin to see where one ends and the other starts. For example, syncretism would be the blending of Christianity and Islam and then the blending of Buddhism or Hinduism. It would be the blending of different belief systems. That's syncretism. Now this is what Jesus is getting at. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, when he says this, that no one can serve two masters. Either he or she will hate the one and love the other, or he or she will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There is no blending. There is no syncretism. It's like trying to mix oil and water. Greed has a curse attached to it. It becomes an idol. It becomes an object of worship. Greed makes money and stuff godlike. Money becomes a god just like the silver in our text becomes an idol. And Micah's own house becomes the house of God. And Micah's own son becomes his priest. And there is this perversion of true worship leading the author to complain of the fact that there was no king in Israel at the time and everybody did what everybody thought they should do. What they saw fit. And the last thing we notice in the text is that we are not told why Micah, or sorry, yeah, why Micah took the 1,100 pieces of silver. We assume that it's greed, which leads us to moral anarchy. And this is a strange story. It's a strange text. But it brings us back now to our subject matter, that greed is a social issue. Greed is a spiritual issue. That greed is a moral issue. It is one of the seven deadly sins or one of the seven vices because greed is the result of excessive love. Greed has two primary components. It wants to get what it doesn't have and it wants to keep what it's got. Now, we usually associate greed with somebody who is stingy, miserly, tight-fisted, 
and a skin flint. Like Ebenezer Scrooge. Secretly hoarding his wealth. But here's the downside. It leads us to think that if we do not secretly hoard our resources, then we are off the hook. And we wrongly assume that greed is often considered the sin of the wealthy, but everybody is vulnerable to it. Greed is a vice of humanity. We are all susceptible to it. Me, you, all of us. And we live in an age when greed looks a lot different than it did in biblical times. Greed is such that it is a respectable social sin. It is an acceptable social sin. It is hard to identify because it it is reinforced by certain cultural trends and icons. The salaries, sorry, the salaries demanded, or should we say negotiated, by sports stars. The amount of money that movie stars demand for making a film, or CEOs and who make millions in bonuses. The lottery corporation, or if we should say the gaming industry, which is a fuzzy word, by the way, for gambling. Or even the free market system. Or the banking system, or the stock exchange, etc., etc. Now, I want you to track with me for a moment, because what I'm going to tell you is needs to be listened to to get it. It has been suggested by many, that capitalism, our economic system, is the social engine of greed. So over this summer, I have been reading, over the early summer, I've been reading um, Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Not a Christian, not even close. And he says that the source of greed in our modern society goes all the way back to 1776. That's right, 1776, to a Scottish um, economist when he published what Harari claims to be probably the most important economics manifesto of our time. Matter of fact, he says of all time. Now, follow me with this. In the eighth chapter of Smith's book, Harari says, that Smith made a novel argument. When a landlord or a weaver, now remember, it's 1776, when a landlord, a weaver, or a shoemaker has greater profits than he maintains, than he needs to maintain his own family, He uses the surplus to employ more assistants in order to further increase his profits. You follow me so far? The more profits he has, the more assistants that he can employ. It follows, says Harari, that an increase in the profits of private entrepreneurs is the basis for the increase in collective wealth and prosperity. 
You still with me? One more thing. <clears throat> Harari says, This may not strike us as being very original, because we live in a capitalistic world that takes Smith's arguments for granted. Yet Smith's claim, and here it is, yet Smith's claim that the selfish, selfish human urge to increase private pro profits is the basis for collective wealth is one of the most revolutionary ideas in human history. And then he adds, revolutionary not from just an economic perspective, but even more so from a moral and a political perspective. And then he concludes with this. What Smith says is, in fact, that greed is good. And that by becoming richer, I benefit everyone, not just myself. And his final line is, egotism is all truism. Now, I get the point. I have never read Adam Smith, but I find it hard to accept that in 1776, Adam Smith would have agreed with Harari that greed is good. Now, greed is different and separate from capitalism. And we all know that there is greed in capitalism, and it's always a potential problem, but it's not inherent. And I certainly would not believe that greed is good at any level. And I'm pretty confident that neither Jesus nor the Bible would either suggest such a thing. So how do we respond? How do we respond in a world where people believe that greed is good? I think it has something to do with how we measure success. What is success? The composer Irving Berlin once said cutely, the toughest thing about success is that you have to go on being a success. Success in life is more than stuff. We know this, right? We know this. We're Christians. Logan Persall Smith, now most of you would not know who he is, but he was a, an American-born British critic and writer. His mother was Hannah Whitehall Smith, and she wrote the classic book, Christian book, The Secret, the Christian Secret of a Happy Life. And he said this, How can they say my life isn't a success? Have I not for more than 60 years got enough to eat and escape being eaten? Now, I have no idea what he meant by the last piece, by the way. I have no idea. Now, but here's the point. Just because... Bill Gates' net worth is $84.8 billion U.S. does not mean that the rest of us can't be just as happy with life. Simply by being able to feed ourselves and house ourselves and being able to pay our bills. 
But it all depends on our definition of success. Now, we have often heard the motivational statement. No one remembers who came in second. How many have heard that? No one remembers who comes in second. But here's what I've discovered. That most people never remember who comes in first. So let me quiz you. How many of you know who won the World Series in 2017? It was the Cubs. And I knew that because I looked it up. But how many of you know who won the Super Bowl in 2017? Raise your hand. It's not a sin to know it. Who was it? The Patriots. Don't they always win? Oh, except for the deflated football thing. Yeah, exactly. How many of us know who won the Augusta Masters in 2016? 17? Anybody know? Anybody know who won the Stanley Cup last year? Raise your hand. Jessica, who won it? The, The Penguins, of course. It's her team, by the way. Here's the point. Sometimes we chafe. And we get frustrated. And our source of frustration is kind of a systemic discontentment with our lives. Nothing is quite right. But if we were really forced to admit it, there's nothing really quite wrong either, is it? All we know is we want something and we're not getting it. And somehow we think and we live with the delusion that we can have or somehow be and live as the most wealthy in our world. And the frustration of it all lies in the fact that we're sure we have a right to what we want. Now the desert monks in the third century, three centuries after Jesus, spoke of this inner, inner struggle of chafing and frustrating, uh, frustration. They, they called it spiritual chafing. Tell me what makes a monk, Macarius asks. And Abba Zacharias answers him, as far as I can tell, I think anyone who controls himself and makes himself content with just what he needs and no more is indeed a monk. Now, I know that doesn't mean anything to you and me, but I want to change one word. And I want to exchange the word monk for the word Christian or Christ follower. So tell me, what makes a Christian or a Christ follower, Macarius asks? And Abba Zacharias answers him, as far as I can tell, I think anyone who controls himself and makes himself content with just what he needs and no more is indeed a Christian or a Christ follower. But that's too much, isn't it? In our global economy. That's too much. Living in Canada. That's too much to ask of me as a Christian living in Sudbury. And the answer is obvious. 
learning to be contented with what we have and no more, but at the same time, the problem is obvious. Learning to be content escapes us. And our frustration and our spiritual chafing keeps us from being what and who we were meant to be, like loving parents and good friends and faithful partners and Christ-honoring people. But put your seatbelt on. Usually, our frustration and our spiritual chafing is a cover-up. It's a mask for something we haven't yet faced in ourselves. Chichester says, the lady I began with, There is really one small difference between the politician who had so many houses that he couldn't remember exactly how many and the homeless man who had nothing and yet gave the diamond ring back to the woman who had accidentally dropped it in his cup. One of them, she says, had everything and was satisfied with nothing. And the other had nothing and was satisfied. So here's a question for us this morning, for all of us. Here's a question that we need to ask ourselves. Am I satisfied? Am I satisfied? And if you're not, or if I'm not, then why not? then why not? Now, my definition of satisfaction is this. Satisfied is wanting what I have rather than wanting what I do not have. That's my definition. That satisfaction, for me, is wanting what I have and not wanting what I do not have. You see, failure... Failure is, or sorry, rather, greed is failure in success. Church, look around. Look around the room. Look at the room. Look at us. I think we can say that we're fairly successful at every level. We live in the greatest country in the world. We probably live in one of the most affluent cities in Ontario, possibly in Canada. And I think that constitutes success. But if we are not satisfied with what we have, then just what might it take for us to be satisfied? Alexander the Great, with this I'm done. Alexander the Great conquered the known worlds. And when he had conquered them, he complained that there were no more worlds to conquer. But when he died, he instructed the people who buried him to have his bare hand outside the coffin to show everybody that you can't take it with you. 
Am I satisfied? Are you satisfied? Are we satisfied? Do we want what we have? Let's pray. Father, I know that this is hard to hear. It's hard for me to deliver it. But it's important because you say in your word, the reason why Peter wrote his second epistle was not because another epistle needed to be written or another letter needed to be put to pen. He says at the very beginning of chapter 3, I do this to stir up your pure minds, your sincere minds, by way of remembrance. And Lord, we live in a world where we are bombarded by messages that bigger is better, that more, more is better. That greed is good. Father, I pray that when we find ourselves colliding with value systems that are not, that do not align with your word, that do not align with the words of Jesus, that you, we would listen, that you would help us to listen to the voice of your Spirit. And Father, if we cannot answer that question, am I satisfied? Then we need to do some hard work. We need to do some reflection around why. Why do we want to win the lottery? What is the lottery going to do for us that you can't? And so we pray that by your grace, that you would help us in the name of Jesus and for his praise. Amen.